Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest this time got in touch by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com all the way from Portland, Oregon, Max Lieberman. Welcome to the book club, Max. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, honored to be a guest on the show. Oh, it's great. And we managed to negotiate the time difference. Uh, it's evening for me on Sunday in the morning for you there in Portland. And we've sorted out Zoom as well. So here we go. So, Max, tell us, uh, before we get to today's book, what's your uh, 2000 AD uh, history? Uh, my 2080 origin story. I bet this is a little bit different than than many of your guests because obviously I wasn't aware of the comic as a kid growing up in the United States. It wasn't widely distributed here, uh, but as a fan of comics from an early age, I did read lots of stuff by writers and artists who had worked on or gotten their start on the prog. Uh, it was a real murderer's row of contributors, and I'm sure it still is. So. I guess the first thing I read by somebody who worked on it was probably stumbling across an issue of of Watchmen, uh, appropriately enough, as a kid in a, in a comic book store that I remember as being sort of like a, a, a must have been nine or something. I had no idea what what the book was. I picked up the copy, it had a smiley face with blood on the on the front cover, and sort of blew my mind. And I think the first thing that I actually read that was from 2008 must have been a, a collected edition of DR and Quinch. Uh, that I ran across just a used copy of something that I had no idea what it was that was a work by Alan Moore. Oh, right. Okay. Well, we've had D.R. and Quinch on the podcast, strange enough, with uh, another American guest, Adam Murdo from the Comic Geek Speak podcast. Uh, so that was your first encounter with um, the galaxy's greatest then? Yeah, it must have been. Since then, I've, I have gone back and, and having listened to Mega City Book Club a number of times, I've, I've actually been inspired to go back, read a bunch of the early Dread arcs. Uh, I think I had independently come across uh, Zenith, the early Grant Morrison work, and, and that that's actually probably how I found your show, because if I recall correctly, you had an episode on on that. And man, it's hard to find people talking about that book anywhere on the internet. So yes. that was wonderful to listen to. Yeah, book one we've done, and we will at some point hopefully be getting to the other books. Uh, just such a long list of books to get to. Okay, and do you read 2000 AD stuff now, or are you just picking up the occasional trades? Yeah, it's really the occasional trade. I, I haven't seen anything recent from it, but uh, I will keep listening to your show, and if there's new arcs that are coming out I should check out, I will. Well, let's get to today's book. Uh, what have you chosen to come on the book club with, uh, Max? I am looking forward to talking about Alan Moore's Providence, which is his take on H.P. Lovecraft and the H.P. Lovecraft mythos and, and sort of a sequel to a couple of earlier works that were shorter and maybe a little bit more modest in ambition. Wow, it's going to be it's just an interesting one. So obviously written by Alan Moore, art by Jason Burroughs. This was a 12 issue series from Avatar Press that ran from 2015 to 17, coloured by Juan Rodriguez, letters Kurt Hathaway and the editors Jim Kahorik and William Christensen. So first of all, Max, why this particular book? Have you, you know, why have you chosen this one? Oh, gee. Uh, I mean, the story of someone watching the world around them collapsing into madness, uh, questioning the fundamental truths of human existence 
Uh, I really have no idea why that that felt relevant to me right now in 2020. Um, <laughs> it's a 2020 book, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. Uh, you know, I think I picked it probably before things were exactly where they are right now as we talk in uh, in October of 2020. Uh, but just specific to Moore and, and to sort of who's, as I've probably already conveyed the impression, is, is my favorite writer uh, in the medium. It's maybe his last great work. You know, he's he's cried wolf on retirement from comic books before. But this is a pretty ambitious 12-issue series, part of a bigger tradition of him taking on genre literature uh, and history, things like From Hell, Watchmen, you know, Miracle Man or Marvel Man, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, even, even things like Top Ten. You know, he's really interested in these revisionist takes and these re-examining uh, real-world historical figures at the same time. And this feels like it's part of that legacy for him. And again, it's something that I just haven't seen a lot of people talking about. And I think there's a lot to mine. Okay. So it's going to be a tricky synopsis to give, apart from, as you say, the world descended into um, a certain degree of madness and chaos within the book. What is Providence about, would you say? Whew, uh, let's try, I'll try and keep this short. Uh, so as you said, it's a 12-issue series, a sequel to a couple of previous works, The Courtyard and Neonomicon, uh, which we can talk about a little bit, each of those. But it is a an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft. Both some stories by Lovecraft also incorporates real-world figures, some new characters that Moore has created. And the series is following a journalist named Robert Black as he travels through early 20th century New England. Um, as a New Englander myself, I found it fun to visit some of these locations. Uh, while Black researches a book that he wants to write about secrets in America, the first 10 issues are more or less direct takes on specific Lovecraft stories, usually mixed up together, often with some sort of new spin that Moore has put on the original. Uh, Black's diary is reproduced at the end of each issue, so it's interesting to get his take on, on what he's experiencing or thinks he is experiencing as it goes. The character's pretty oblivious to what's going on, uh, which is more serious than he understands at first. And when we eventually realize what's happening sooner than he does, it turns out that he's part of an ancient conspiracy to restore the universe as it used to be, which was a Lovecraftian universe ruled over by these strange gods with things like physics and rationality and human history, you know, not, uh, not existing anymore. So the details of that conspiracy get a little muddled for me, actually, in the reading. And maybe we can talk about that and try and tease it out. But the last two issues follow the spread of these ideas that Black has been gathering up in his book and has communicated to Lovecraft. The two characters meet in, in the comic and Lovecraft writes his stories just like he did in reality. Uh, and in Moore's world, those stories then do something to the culture that, that brings this horrible older reality back into existence and reality collapses around everyone and is replaced by uh, grandeur and beauty or madness and decay. I guess you get to take your pick, as you do in Lovecraft. Yes, you do, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, as you say, uh, a very interesting and complicated plot. Um, and H.P. Lovecraft, a character himself in the book, uh, and in a way, as you say, this is sort of creating 
um, some of Lovecraft's work, or at least given him the inspiration for it. And I, I, it's interesting what you said about Robert Black's diary entries, which feature at the end of each uh, issue, because... As you say, his perceptions of what he's experiencing are not necessarily what we see on the page. Um, I think he is a bit slower to catch on, perhaps, than we are. Yeah, he's surprisingly incurious for a journalist uh, and for somebody who's trying to write a book about uncovering secrets. You know, he's... I can't actually tell how we, we are supposed to feel about Black. I don't know if we're supposed to see him as this uh, buffoonish sort of self-involved in over his head, uh, person who in some sense, in some sense, not deserves maybe, but is like responsible for what his eventual fate for what befalls him. Uh, or if we're supposed to view him more sympathetically as, as someone who really couldn't have done anything because as protagonists are in Lovecraft, he's just in and way over his head in this sort of cosmic horror reality that, uh, that he is an ant, you know, relative to the scale of, this conspiracy and this reality. Uh, but he seems, I guess in his defense, maybe he's, he's also dealing with a huge amount of guilt about something that's happened in his personal life uh, just at the beginning of the story where uh, we can talk about, about him a little bit more, but he's a, he is a closeted figure in, in a couple of senses. He's this character who is both secretly Jewish and also secretly gay in a time and in a place when those things wouldn't have been, very acceptable uh, and his lover has just committed suicide because uh, because his fear of being outed as gay has sort of led him to treat that lover in a pretty cold manner yes i mean you know i suppose it goes without saying for a book about lovecraft uh, by alan moore that there's lots of dark stuff in here isn't there um yeah what about Alan Moore and H.P. Lovecraft? You've mentioned these two earlier comic book works that uh, lead up to this one in a way. Um, and his history with Lovecraft is interesting and also has a, a great snippet about some lost stories, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't think I know that whole story. Something about things being left in a cab, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm fascinated by lost works of art. Um, it's a bit like the Steve Dillon artist who uh, le left some artwork for a Judge Dredd strip in a pub once, and then they had a very frantic uh, weekend of redoing the art. Apparently, at some point in 1994, Moore was writing a Lovecraft book called Yugoth Culture, and he left most of it on the back seat of a London cab. So, <laughs> great lost works. But one of the surviving stories became The Courtyard, which came out... Um, in a comic book version by Anthony Johnson and Jason Burroughs again in 2003. But I guess you've read all of those. Yeah, I have. I read The Courtyard. If I remember right, he did, so like you said, he didn't do the script for that. That was really an adaptation that I assume he, he would have signed off on and gotten a check, but it wasn't until they returned and decided to do Neonomicon as a sequel to that, that, that he actually was scripting it for a comic book. And the pace and the sort of, structure of the courtyard is a little bit different from both Neonomicon and from, and from Providence. I think it's, it's like vertical panels yes. instead of, yeah, it, it feels different. It feels like, uh, an earlier work, a little bit stiffer, a little bit less tailored, tailored to the page maybe. And you've mentioned that more sort of often hinted that, you know, he's finished with comics and moving on to other media. 
and that this may have been his last, as you say, his last great comic book. But he was, lure- I gather he was lured back by um, the, uh, the misfortune of a large tax bill. And I, yeah, I think that's right for Neonomicon. That was, that's the origin story for that. I, I re- he sort of apologized for Neonomicon at some point or sort of acknowledged it as like a, a lesser work and, and gave that as an explanation. Uh, I, I don't know if he's talked about the choice to go ahead and write this as a sequel. Have Have you read anything from him talking no, about Providence? No, I haven't. No, I mean I'm interested because they they get the the three works obviously get longer and more complex and possibly darker as they go on as well, don't they? Um, it really feels like in Providence that he's he's really exploring everything about H.P. Lovecraft and his influence. Yeah, agreed. I don't know if I'd say they get darker. They start off pretty dark. The I mean the the narrator character in the courtyard is is a pretty horrible person you know who i don't think we're rooting for particularly he's a a racist who seems one small push away from going over the edge and and becoming whatever kind of monster it is he's tracking down and and that is indeed what happens to him and that character uh returns in as sort of an antagonist in the neonomicon and then later shows up briefly at the end of providence and then neonomicon is is full of some really horrible uh, sexual violence, which, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the role of of that uh, trope, I guess, in, in Moore's work. But that's really the thing that I, I think when I first read Neonomicon, I was really turned off by how it handled that material. Uh, and I was, I'm tempted, uh, I'm tempted as a fan of Moore to read Providence as, as him looking at that and saying, uh, seeing the same thing I did and then trying to redeem the work. But who knows if that's right. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, it certainly he is, as I say, he's going to the dark art of Lovecraft. Um, I, I'm very interested that this sort of metafictional reality that exists in, uh, particularly in Providence, uh, which refers not only to Lovecraft, but there's this other author, Robert W. Chambers, who's been... Uh, getting a lot of attention, I think, in the last few years, um, particularly for this this work of collected stories, The King in Yellow. And I think, was it True Detective Series 1 that I think riffed on a lot of that as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you read that book? It's actually a sort of a series of short stories, some of which seem to be connected and others maybe not. Yes, I have read it. I, did, I must admit I found it a difficult read because it is... Well, it's over. It's well over a hundred years old now, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's very strange. It's it's a book that exists before maybe the sort of established genres that we think of, like you know, science fiction or fantasy, were really set. And it it seems to hint at some of those things that would come later in a way that you know, there's another there's another character who uh, Chambers is mentioned in Providence in a kind of dismissive way. Interestingly. Uh, and it's it's hard to know what that means because the character who is dismissive of him is is this Lovecraftian evil god. So yes. what what does that mean about what Moore thinks? Who knows? But Ambrose Bierce, another uh, roughly contemporary American writer who who was also an inspiration to to Lovecraft, uh, actually shows up at the end of Providence is is talked about a little bit more positively. Uh, and then there's also I don't know if he's mentioned in in Providence directly, but uh, Arthur Mackin, who I haven't oh, read, right. yeah, but is another one of these sort of early influences. And and Lovecraft, as Providence gets into eventually, in in the really strange issue eleven, which is sort of 
takes us out of this world that we've been following for 10 issues and then steps into like a montage of real world events surrounding Lovecraft and the writers that he collaborated with talks about how Lovecraft was not just, you know, a singular author, but was, was the center of this sort of shared universe uh, where he encouraged other writers to contribute to that ongoing mythos. And then after he died relatively young, several of those people continued to write stories and in that world and, and even using his name and his characters. Right. Uh, Arthur Macken wrote a st- uh, the only story I know is the great God Pan, I think, isn't it? That's a Macken story. Also the only one I know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, I thought, you know, you know, not only does Chambers get mentioned in Providence, but certain elements of Robert Black's world seem to be influenced by uh, the King in Yellow. Am I, th- am I writing that the Suicide Gardens is a feature of w- one of the stories in the King in Yellow? Yes, that's right. And that is interesting because a, a lot of what happens in that, in this sort of metafictional sense in the series is that there are these things that Moore is positing are real and that this character, Robert Black, is going around and taking notes on on people he's met and, and situations he's encountered. And then he shares that, that diary with Lovecraft, who then takes those as story ideas and, and supposedly turns them into the stories that we're familiar with. And so that that's the sort of transformation of uh, how things get get encoded into those stories for the Lovecraft stuff. But you're right that the what the exit gardens, the suicide booths, uh, also show up in Futurama, obviously. But the uh, those are different. Those just exist in this world already. Uh, the courtyard, if you remember, also had some hints that the reality of the universe there wasn't the same one that we live in. There was this this notion of cities having shields above them to protect from some sort of uh, extraterrestrial influence. And we get, we get, I think, maybe the origin of that here with the version of the color out of space that shows up. Yes. And as you say, not only does he create in a way, Lovecraft's works, or give you know, provide the inspiration for Lovecraft's works. But then, towards the end of the series, we get other real-world figures. In particular, um, is is there one of the sort of well-known Lovecraftian critics or historians turns up as a character? Or, I think at the end as well. Right, uh, St. I'm gonna go with Joshi, but I could be wrong. I've never That's heard anyone chap, say yes. it. Uh, yeah, with, who I, I guess I should preface this. I'm I'm a like I, I like Lovecraft's stories and some of the themes, mostly the themes that are in them. I think he's got some weaknesses as a writer and some obvious weaknesses as a human being. But I'm I'm by no means like the world's great scholar, <laughs> amateur or otherwise on Lovecraft. And Joshi is. He's that he's that person who is sort of in the academic world, uh, the guy who's going to write you know three or four biographies of of Lovecraft and look at look at what his work means and and where it came from and all of that. Yeah, he shows up in issue 12 as one of the we're led to believe relatively few human survivors who are going on to live in this world that's been transformed into uh into Yugoth it, again going back to the the origin of where Moore wanted to go with this. The the original work you said was called Yugoth Cultures, the one that was lost. That's the one, yes. Yeah. So bringing it back around again. And and it gets very meta with him commenting and the other co- characters commenting on what does it mean to be a human survivor in a, you know, post-human Lovecraftian reality. So uh, there's an interesting interview with Joshi that I found online where he talks about, 
he had a brief phone conversation, I guess, with Moore, uh, where Moore said, hey, do you mind if, I think he asked him if he minded if he used him in a comic, or maybe he just told him that he was working on this comic, and then he found out later he was in it. So he apparently has no objections, but didn't know exactly what it was going to be beforehand. Yeah, well, I suppose if Alan Moore said, you're going to put you in a comic, we'd probably think, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, interesting, depending on which section it was in. Um the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen will come up at some point on the podcast. Somebody's chosen it as a book to do in the future. And as that series has progressed to Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill, it seems to me that they have... They've touched on Lovecraftian mythos in those stories as well. But also, I was reading an article today about Alan Moore and Providence, and it was going on about... Or it was suggesting Moore's interest in the power of fictions to influence reality um the league of extraordinary gentlemen obviously all about these fictional characters existing in a some sort of shared real universe for them and here we've got um literally the power of narrative fiction altering this world within providence which is a very strange concept isn't it it is a strange concept, but it is not a new concept to those of us who have read stuff by Moore and Grant Morrison and Warren Ellis, uh, speaking of problematic creators. Uh, so I guess I maybe have a question for you, which is what is it with some of these great British comic writers uh, being obsessed with magic and the idea that there's this transformational magical power of narrative to enact things that they're writing about. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from because certainly those first two you've mentioned, Morrison and Moore, have both had those very similar uh, experiences that they've related and have this same metafictional approach to the comics they've written over the years, haven't they? Um, and then, of course, a series like Planetary, which has, again, the power of fiction and uh, fictional worlds crashing into a, a real world. Um, very interesting stuff. So I don't know is the answer. I don't know what it is with these Brits trying to escape perhaps our mundane existence by magicking new worlds or fictional worlds into existence. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess on reflection, Grant Morrison is Scottish. I should caveat that. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's something there. I don't know. Obviously, Morrison and Moore hate each other, but that has always struck me as a little bit of a familiarity breeding contempt thing because there there are so many similarities similarities between them. Yes, it's a it's a very odd um, falling out they they've had over the years. The the um, yeah strange hatred they have for each other, which seems very odd. But anyway, there you go. Um, just turn you away for Alan Moore for a moment. We'll come back to him in a minute. Jason Burroughs, not an artist that I'm familiar with at all, apart from these three works of uh, Lovecraftian comic books with Moore. Um, what do you think about his strengths as an artist? Um, do you know him from anywhere else? I do. I know him from uh, Crossed, which was a series that he, I think, illustrated almost all. There were many iterations of that over the years, and he, he illustrated at least some of almost all of those series, uh, which is... It's not a series I would particularly recommend for anybody who's interested in in anything besides shock value. I, I think I think Garth Ennis is responsible for that originally. I think that's right. Yes, uh, it's you know it's about a world that has descended into violent 
anarchy because of a plague that makes people crazy. And it doesn't get a whole lot smarter than that. Although Alan Moore actually did do a short arc on, on a, a spinoff series of that, that was set like a hundred years after the original series and things have gotten even, even worse or maybe a little better. I can't remember. It's been a while. Anyway, that's what I know him from originally. I, I sort of thought of him as sort of a, as like a horror artist, because there's so many scenes of like violent gore in crossed. I was a little bit surprised that he was going to be illustrating this more psychological take on horror material, but I actually, I like what he's done. I think maybe he's grown a little bit as an artist, or maybe I just wasn't being generous enough in, in assuming that he could do more than one thing. What do you think of him? Well, I thought, I mean, as I say, this is my first experience with him. I thought his character designs uh, were fantastic. I've also, I loved his architecture. I loved the buildings. Um, as you say, this tour around New England buildings, um, because it features characters and stories that would inspire Lovecraft, we do get these, um, what should I say? Well, I, we, I guess we get the fish people at some point, don't we? They're sort of like strangely not quite human characters. And yes, I thought those that, were very that good. That Innsmouth look, isn't that that's the That's phrase, the word, yeah. yes, the Innsmouth look, yes. Um, I didn't know about, I suppose... I suppose Providence, there's not an awful lot of actual action in, in Providence. It's a lot of people walking around talking, isn't it? Um, mm. So we, it, it perhaps it doesn't have some of that comic book action that we're perhaps familiar with. Um, and it might be difficult to make characters walking and talking con- constantly um, interesting to us. I don't know. What did you feel about that? It's well, that's sort of a classic challenge in uh, in filmmaking too, right? You get how how do you make this conversation between two people sitting in a room interesting? Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think that's a challenge here. Uh, I agree that he's great at spaces. I think he's got a real command of of what he's drawing. He knows what is going on in three space from you know bone structure to uh, to the architectural details. Uh, and I think it's clear to me that he's done a lot of research. Uh, places and buildings of the era, maybe even clothing. Uh, I know there's a couple of famous photographs that are reproduced by him in the series. Like there's that photo in issue three or that panel in issue three of uh, the actor's equity strike of 1919, which I won't pretend that I knew about before reading this. Uh, oh, side note, I, before I forget, I want to, I, I absolutely want to call out a blog called facts in the case of Alan Moore's Providence which has footnoted a tremendous amount, has footnoted everything I think it would be possible to footnote in this reference-heavy series. And uh, I owe them a tremendous debt. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have noticed half of these things had I not uh, followed along and sort of checked things on the blog as I, as I read this. So uh, some of these observations, I'm sure I owe to them, and I don't want to pretend that they're all mine. Uh, but so, yeah, back to, to, to Burroughs. I think... Uh, that research really comes through. I think that he's not so great at, at it, conveying emotion. Uh, when you have right. two people sitting in a room, if it was a, if it was a movie, you would have the nuances of the actor's performance and you don't have that here. And it sometimes comes across a little bit flat. Okay. And while you mentioned movies, the other thing I noted was Sometimes in films we see a director or director of photography who've really gone for a certain colour palette for the film. 
and I don't particularly think of that in comic books except here where uh, I don't know if it was Jason Burroughs or Kurt, no was it Juan Rodriguez but there's a sort of greyish greenish colour palette to Providence that seems to fit um, maybe as you say that Innsmouth look but that, there's certain there's a certain horror look to it as well isn't there yeah, there is. I, I think there are times when the colors get more vibrant uh, and it really tends to follow along with Black's emotional state. You know, when he's when he's feeling good and he's entering a new town and n- nothing particularly horrible has just happened to him. Uh, you know, we get some vibrant fall colors as he's entering Manchester and then uh, and then things go south there and and we get it starts raining and it gets dim and it gets gray or purple or green. Yeah. Uh, the art overall, the panel structure is really strict. Um, not maybe not quite as strict as as Watchmen was, but you've got this uh, this full page panel, maybe one or two per issue. But other than that, it's like three panels per page. The panel borders seem to track what's happening and who's watching. Like normally, they're this uh, this hand-drawn sort of organic uh, variability to them. But then when something supernatural is going on or is is maybe the point of view, they, they switch to straight ruled lines. Uh, definitely owe that observation to that, to that blog facts in the case of Alan Moore's Providence. Um, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of attention paid to the details of the art, which is again, not surprising for Moore, who's sort of famous for writing an essay per panel. Yes, yes, this is true. Yes, uh, his famously detailed panel descriptions much more than say somebody like John Wagner. Um, <coughs> that blog—that's factsprovidence.wordpress.com, I think, isn't it? Yes, uh, and that's where I also found, as you say, like yourself, there, this is a very heavily reference uh, or a reference-heavy work. Um, and they clued me into for certain time loops that go on in some episodes as well. So as you say, he he arrives in a new town and sees a character on the sidewalk. It turns out to be him at the end of the story leaving. That happens, I think, in at least one issue, which I wouldn't have twigged without the notes. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I liked. That's a particularly psychological bit of horror that happens in that one. Yeah, yeah. Lovecraft's very much back in uh, the zeitgeist of popular culture again. He's a character, or at least his his stories are endlessly fascinating um, and inspire a lot of other fiction. But, of course, he himself had some dark, dodgy, downright unpleasant views. Why is he still such a... An intriguing character to us, or maybe the answer is twenty twenty. But why is he? Why is he so still so fascinating? Yeah, uh, he. I think it's been pretty widely. I hope that people are aware that he had some really horrible views, um, and that that's stuff that it's worth really worth reckoning with if we're also going to enjoy the work. But yeah, he was a racist. He he was an anti semite. You know, he was kind of a jerk in a lot of ways. But he also did a lot of new things with horror that obviously resonated with people and have for decades and have inspired a lot of people to to play with those same ideas and those same sort of sources of horror and tropes, even if they're maybe not inspired or motivated by the same particular personal failings that seem to have driven Lovecraft in a lot of his own writing. So he writes a lot about like, what does it mean that I am who I am? Like, what is what is my blood and my family lineage mean? Or 
you know, things that are sort of obviously horrible eugenics ideas that are really discredited today. But there's also stuff going on about what is my place in the universe? And maybe I'm not that important. And what does that mean? And uh, what does it mean to try and reckon with ideas that are that are beyond human can or human understanding? And what does that do to to our minds and our spirits if we if we encounter those things? And those are those are cool ideas, and you can do a lot with them without having to stay in the same the same space that he was playing in in nineteen whatever when uh, when he was writing those original stories. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Robert Black, the sort of main character, our protagonist, as you say, he meets Lovecraft, um, and but because of the secrets that Black is keeping. Uh, they become sort of friendly. They have friendly chats and discussions about Lovecraft's early works, which Robert Black is an admirer of. But as you say, you know, if he knew some of the secrets that Black was keeping, he would be the sort of person that H.P. Lovecraft would not befriend because of his uh, downright strange views. What about Robert Black as our protagonist? What sort of character is he as the book progresses? Does he become more aware of what's going on he's i mean in the sense of just pure dramatic irony where the audience knows something that the character does not it it starts off with him totally oblivious maybe a little bit willfully oblivious maybe just uh self-involved and not paying close attention but absolutely he eventually can't deny the reality of what is happening and the fact that he's encountering all these people who aren't human and all these all these actors whose motivations are <laughs> are not uh, are malevolent. Uh, he, he can't deny that anymore. Horrible things keep happening to him in sort of escalating sequence, uh, and he finds different ways to to deal with that. In, to to your point about the two characters interacting and and how Lovecraft would feel and how Black how Black hides his identity, I think that stuff is actually pretty deftly handled. More is. You know, Moore's not afraid to to give Lovecraft this fictionalization of Lovecraft within the work some some charming qualities. Personally, he's this he's he's um, he's desirous of praise and flattery. He's got this archaic form of speech that he's using that's that's strange and sort of draws you in. And Black obviously likes him. And then there's this moment when Black realizes he sort of gets a glimpse of these prejudices that that Lovecraft doesn't particularly hide, but I guess haven't come up in the in the character's conversation before. And you can see him turn. You can see him grow cold and immediately withdraw and, and then want to leave. Uh, I think actually I'd, I'd actually love to talk a little bit more about some of those aspects of Black's identity and sort of how he's trying to hide them and and whether whether Moore is trying to subvert some of that racism and, and homophobia uh, and anti-Semitism that's baked into Lovecraft using that character. Because Moore, I think he's said in interviews that uh, all of that stuff is sort of an undercurrent. It's certainly an undercurrent in, or probably a direct current in H.P. Lovecraft's life. But in his fiction, it's there as an undercurrent. But because for the time he would not describe some of the horrific acts uh, that happen perhaps, um, you know, between the pages, as it were, uh, or off panel for us. But of course, Moore and Burroughs can put them directly into the book and we get to see it depicted. There are some truly horrific things going on. 
uh, often just out of the the sight of Robert Black, who seems, as you say, often to be almost willfully oblivious to what's going on around him. Um, but at, at the heart of it, as you say, Black is he's wrestling with a lot of stuff himself. He's in grief as well at the early part of the book. He's an interesting sort of central character. He is. He's he presents himself as this sort of, I mean, I guess we should say he's the, he's a journalist from New York city, right? So yeah. he's this square jawed, manly, bespectacled journalist from New York city. He's almost like a Clark Kent figure on the surface. Right. Uh, but he's hiding all of these things about who he is. Uh, not, not that he is this Superman figure like Clark Kent is hiding, but, but that he has all of these, proclivity is these parts of his identity that wouldn't be accepted if people knew about them. And we might expect that that would make him more sympathetic to characters who are, who are oppressed in some way. And I think there are some points in the book where we see that happening. He, he meets characters who are oppressed by, uh, by classism, like the, this Garland wizard Wheatley figure who's been thrown out of the what, what ends up being this ancient conspiracy order that brings about the end of the world. But Black doesn't know that at the time. He thinks they're just some bunch of crazy mystics. Uh, and he says, boy, you know, he commiserates with that guy about the classism. Uh, but then on the other hand, when he meets somebody else who's part of the group that threw that guy out, uh, he just sort of skates right past uh, that character describing Wheatley as inbred trash. So he's, he's, willing to be sympathetic. And he does the same thing with the Innsmouth people. He commiserates with them. They, they see themselves as oppressed. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting use of Holocaust imagery. Yeah, this takes place before the Holocaust, but like the swastika really did show up in Lovecraft before the Holocaust happened as this weird mystical symbol and, and Moore's playing with that and playing with the idea of racism uh, and that symbol. And, and again, Black is really sympathetic to this group of, to this ethnic minority in this town. Uh, but then he also later rats them out to the FBI who kills them all. So it's not, it's not as simple as it seems on the surface. He, he is willing to pass and to let people see him the way that they want to see him uh, and to sort of take advantage of that privilege. And I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that. I don't know what more means by that. No, I thought it was interesting. I, um, I thought he'd chosen his sort of, the, you know, the characteristics or the, um, the secrets of Robert Black as a de- direct counterpoint to some of Lovecraft's well-known prejudices. Um, did you find, you know, because we're saying this is a very sort of metafictional, massive book about Lovecraft's own fiction, how does it work as a horror comic? Did you find it horrifying, unsettling? Did were there bits of it, like you know, a good episode of a scary TV show that you really felt quite disturbed after reading? Oh yeah, there's this. Uh, there's definitely a, a sort of monster of the week alongside an ongoing arc thing going on here that uh, that reminds me of you know X Files or things like that. Uh, and some of those monsters of the week work a little better than others. Uh, I also think that the source material that, that Moore is working with, like some of those Lovecraft stories are a little better than others. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, the one that you already mentioned where there's this time loop and this sort of, uh, which is, you know, I, there are lots of stories in each issue, but a lot of that stuff was drawn from in, in that issue or two issues was from um, uh, 
what dreams in the witch house and the thing on the doorstep, I think. And, uh, and there's some, yeah, (laughs) that sequence where he goes to visit the college where the, you know, Moore's version of the Necronomicon is being kept. There's some really upsetting stuff in there, both in terms of perceptions of reality, not being trustworthy, which is a trope I particularly happen to love. Uh, And then also in terms of like lack of control. And again, that stuff plays into the use of of sexual violence in the narrative here. That's that's where the big sexual violence scene that seems to occur at least once in every more work happens in this one. Which ones which ones stood out to you? Were there any standout issues? Well, the one I'm I'm quite familiar with the Lovecraft story. Is it Pickman's model? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the issue focused on that and this artist who's creating these paintings of these ghouls. Uh, and it features, I believe the last panel of that was described by Moore as possibly the most expensive panel in comic book history because it's, <laughs> it's an actual photograph. Um, yeah. uh, so I found that one a quite, uh, possibly because that story is quite unsettling, Although, again, I was a little bit struck by Robert Black's almost, as you say, complete lack of awareness of what's going on around him, the horror that's around him. Yes, I would prefer not to understand this, seems to be be what's (laughs) going on with him sometimes. We could probably accept that, yes. Uh, Yeah, that panel, that one photograph panel, it's not that it's horrific particularly, but boy, there is some striking stuff about it. So, yeah, I'll I'll let people discover that for themselves. (laughs) Uh, that, I think that that one's actually quite funny to me because there's a uh, black is clearly trying to to get a particular explanation out of having this conversation with uh, with uh, what is it Robert Underwood Pittman or Ronald I can't remember he yes, changes the Pittman, names slightly I think, right? yes yeah uh, so he, like Pittman is saying one thing and black is saying oh so you mean this and he keeps saying uh, yeah sure like let's go with that whatever so yeah that one that one's great too. Um, obviously, we've touched upon it. The most disturbing issue, I think, is, is the one, as you say, that features the episode of sexual violence. And as I was reading the book, I was sort of, I must have confessed, I had this little thought at the back of my mind saying, oh, please don't, oh, please don't, oh, please don't. And I got to that issue and he did. It is a, it's, it is a particularly disturbing episode for any comic book, isn't it? I did, I mean... If I put Alan Moore's point of view, which he has expressed, I think, on a number of occasions, um, he says, because sexual violence is a real thing in the real world, it should be reflected in some degree in comic books about real worlds or fictional worlds. And he justifies it on that basis, which I guess gives things a certain... Uh, how would we put it? It's a very sort of real horror in this comic book, but it does seem to crop up in most of his books. I found. Did it? I mean, it's it is disturbing and troubling aspect, particularly for Providence, isn't it? Yeah. I, well, let's. Tr- I guess let's treat it as as the event in Providence to begin with. So what what happens? Spoilers off. Obviously, uh, what happens is that there's this character who's able to body swap with people yes. and he body swaps with the protagonist and then and then essentially uses his uses robert black's own body to to rape robert black's consciousness which is very upsetting on a number of levels i mean it, it really does work as horror i guess within the narrative it's also very upsetting to look at like just the drawings are you know 
Burroughs does not shy away. Um, this is this is a an example of maybe why he <laughs> crossed was a good uh, good preparation for drawing this work. He's really unafraid to draw anything. So from the perspective of is this really awful? Yes, it is really awful. Um, I'm not sure that that in itself is justification. Um, it it's not something that you know the the story that that stuff that character is drawn from this character who can swap bodies more is is kind of or not more excuse me lovecraft's kind of a prude lovecraft doesn't really represent sex i think when when you mentioned more talking about like what's going on off screen let's put it on screen i think that's almost more what he's talking about than than the racism he's talking about mm. like when you know what is a nameless ritual <laughs> what, yes. what's going on in that ritual let's talk about it um so sure you know maybe he's mining for that and trying to trying to expose something that, that Lovecraft was hinting at or, or not willing to acknowledge, but, but why, but so what stepping out from whether it works as part of the narrative, which I, I grudgingly <laughs> would say that it does. It's really upsetting. Like I said, uh, you, I mean, you gave, you gave part of the explanation I've heard more, more give for why he does this so much. Uh, I don't know if your source is the same as the one that I read, but there's this long blog post called The Last Alan Moore Interview yes. um, with a writer whose actual name I will not try to pronounce, but who goes also by Slova Books. Adric Amiloid, I believe. Thank you. So Moore, yeah, Moore says what you said, which is that, hey, it happens in the real world, so why shouldn't I represent it? He also says, uh, you know, nothing should be off limits to art. He also he gives a bunch of explanations. He also says, I actually don't represent it that much. It's just that all other comics are censored or, Hey, I show murder more than I show this. Um, and then there's this personal history explanation that I had never heard before. Um, but in that, in that interview, he says that he was the subject of an attempted abduction when he was six years old. And he also says that he was molested as a child by a teacher, which maybe that does go some way to explaining why he'd he'd want he'd keep returning to this as a topic and sort of need to work through it but you know i it's hard to play head shrinker with why people take things from their own life and put them into their art ultimately do you i mean do you find those explanations satisfying that's a very good question max um as I say, I wish it wasn't in every comic. I think in a comic as dark and disturbing as the Lovecraft adaptations, he could probably justify it. Uh, I think if we talked about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a much more, should I say, in in some ways more conventionally comic booky, I found it, as the series progressed, I just got the feeling that it was increasingly leery of Moore and O'Neill. Um that there seemed to be a certain, you know, fascination with having all the female characters constantly dressing and undressing and so on, which I began to find rather uncomfortable. Although, you know, clearly we've sort of, we're dancing around a little bit, but the the actual rape um, that's happening in Providence is extremely disturbing, particularly, or, you know, partly because, as you say, um, there's, there's this body swap going on so that Black's body is, in essence, raping Black's, as you said, consciousness. 
Um, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. But yeah, and the, fe- the female body. I guess we're also dancing around this. The female body in this scene is like a like a what a fourteen year old girl or something. It's like exactly. That, which is, yes. Yeah. It's really, I don't know. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I. <laughs> I it's tricky to stuff to talk about. Yes. It is. It's really. It's tricky even to talk about without sounding and feeling feeling kind of gross. Um, I guess let me zoom out a little bit and try to try to intellectualize this and put myself more on ground where I feel comfortable again. (laughs) You know, like these are questions that are, this is a cultural space right now that's sort of unsettled. Um, These questions of what is the difference between the art and the artist? Uh, You got, I mean, I mentioned Warren Ellis and horrible stuff came out about him recently being sort of predatory toward young female fans. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's true, let's say for legal purposes, but it seems in keeping with accusations that have been made against lots of male artists, Um, Woody Allen, uh, Mm. someone who, you know, I, I was sort of taught to grow up idolizing as a filmmaker is not, is seeming like a real terrible human being these days. Um, you know, separation of between the art and the artist, what's, what right does the artist have to represent things that they haven't experienced or identities that don't belong to them? Um, what is it, is it okay to to create art that, that might expose the audience to traumas that they remember from their own life? Um, what responsibility does an artist have to sort of be, to espouse or, or exemplify correct politics in their art like these are all these all come up in relation to this work and none of them are easy questions to answer no and as you say the constant question of whether we should still uh look at or read art by some other characters with very dodgy past like as you say woody allen roman polanski's films it's still not all that long since roman polanski was was he given an honorary oscar or something like that yeah yeah that's right. yeah okay um tricky stuff we should perhaps leave that there and just say to people that it does it does feature some very unpleasant stuff um but then of course then the world ends so and um, we don't get any much better after that do we is it a very 2020 book in a way to read this sort of existential horror um that leads up to the ancient ones recreating you goth, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I was being flip about it at the beginning, but there is, uh, there is an echo for me of you have these things that you believe to be firm parts of the reality around you. Right. And, and in 2020, those are maybe things like I have the ability to go out and be with people or, uh, you know, the, these systems of American democracy will function as as designed or any number of other things that are that that feel less firm and feel less trustworthy right now. And that sort of that sense of reality disintegrating around you and you not being able to rely on on the things that you believe in on the perceptions that once felt real to you uh, is something that is happening to this character, Robert Black, uh, and is and happens to a lot of Lovecraft protagonists. It's also something that you see a lot. Of, I don't know if you're a Philip K. Dick fan, but like that's one of the things that I, I also love about his works is that constantly happens to his characters. They aren't who they thought they were. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes. That's a very sort of um, Philip K. Dick thing, isn't it? Okay. Would you, I mean, in 
the latter, as we say, October 2020, would you recommend Providence uh, as a challenge for our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I think we're being pretty, um, I don't know if we're being critical of it. I think we're, we're taking a, a hard eye to it and saying, why this, why that? Um, you know, okay, Lovecraft's horrible in all these ways. What is more doing to uh, to examine that? And those are all questions worth asking. But at root, you know, I wouldn't have picked this if I didn't think that Moore was still probably even even if this is his last work and he's been doing this for how many decades now? He's probably the best writer uh, in the medium. Uh, certainly, my favorite when you take into account everything that he's created. And I think that this is a series that's worth being talked about. It, it, it merits inclusion in the discussion of his best stuff uh, of those books that I mentioned before from hell, Watchmen, Marvel man, um, league of extraordinary gentlemen, not a huge fan of the last, the last one in that series, but the early the stuff. Yeah. But uh, there's some, Me there's neither. Some, <laughs> some cranky bits in there, but anyway, yeah. I, this is, I think this is really, it's more reckoning with literature and ideas that are worth reckoning with. He does some really clever stuff with them as, as he always does. Uh, and it's the, the production values, the polish on this is very high. Uh, I think it's great. And there's all this cool back matter too. I mean, the, the diaries, we glossed over them and we talked a little bit about them, but like you can spend easily as much time as you do reading the rest of the issue, just reading Black's reflections on what happened to him and, and thinking about that. It's good stuff. Yes. Yes, it is. It's interesting stuff. And uh, he's done, again, an Alan Moore, Back Matter Matters. He's put plenty in there in those diaries, um, which actually reveals more about what's been happening to us, perhaps more so than it does to Black. Um, okay, fascinating stuff, Max. What about, just quickly, have you read any other comic book adaptations of Lovecraft? I've got a couple of books by 2000 AD creators. I think ING Colbar did has done one. I think Ian Edgington and Disraeli have adapted a couple of his books. I don't know, have you come across any yourself? I haven't. I've read a lot of the original stories. Uh, some of them I loved, some of them were slog. Uh, and I've seen a lot of movies that are either direct adaptations or like really closely inspired. But no, I would love to hear which of those you'd recommend. Oh, I'll, I'll, I should have dug them out on my desk now. I shall send you some links uh, and show you the ones I've got. What about the HBO series Lovecraft Com- Country? Are you watching that? Not yet. I'm waiting for a, I'm waiting for a critical consensus. There's so much television now and so few hours in the day. Uh, but I know that that's that's a series that I think the explicit intention is really to take on the the racial legacy of the material. Yes. How is it? Well, I saw the first episode and then I got sidetracked by um, The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix. <laughs> but yes, I, I liked the first episode. I mean, it's quite, it's quite clear in the first episode that all this stuff is happening and exists. It's very much like Providence. You know, it's not um, any sort of creeping suggestion off, off screen of unknown horrors. The horrors are pretty much on screen. There's also a great line in it in the first episode where a uh two characters on a bus are having a conversation about the is it edgar rice burroughs who wrote the john carter of mars books i think that's right didn't he also do is he the tarzan guy Quarterman guy or Quartermain is h rider haggard i think oh, but anyway right. so Thank they're you. talking about um you know 
these characters are talking about the books and about the problematical nature of John Carter, who was a Confederate soldier, you know, who fought for slavery. Um, and the character says, stories are like our families. They're like, you know, they have their flaws, but we still try to love them and cherish them. Um, and there's something about that, I think, with Lovecraft's fiction that, you know, we can still be interested and read the fiction even while acknowledging the faults of the man himself. So I think it's interesting. I shall have to watch the rest of it, catch up. Yeah, I, it, it is on my list. Uh, and I think it's it's asking at least the, uh, the right questions. So I look forward to that. So uh, the book it was based on I read as well, and that was very Monster of the week as well, which was quite good. You know, like yourself, I like the X-Files Monster of the Week episodes. Um, mm -hmm. less of the conspiracy nonsense <laughs> yep uh, I have been uh, I have been binging uh, X-Files season one with my wife uh, recently and it is it is just so nostalgic to go back to that time and, and spend some time with those characters it's great stuff we've had a very serious discussion about quite a serious and heavy book what about if we lighten it up slightly are there any pieces of Jason Burroughs' art from the book that you would choose for the Grail Page game? And you may not want to hang them on your wall, but you could keep them in the art folder. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think there's there's some really great stuff that he does with layout in particular. Um, okay, I, I went through the book with this question in mind because I knew you were going to ask it. Uh, as a Bostonian, I grew up in Boston. Uh, I love the riot pages at the start of issue seven. It's all set in the north end of Boston, which is this, you know, brick close in space. And it's very recognizable to me uh, from having been there in modern times. And then there's this bit in the next issue, in issue eight, where um, Robert Black is working with a character who helps him lucid dream, essentially, which is something that happens in a, in a cycle of Lovecraft stories that's really interesting, more fantastical and a little bit less horror. And they're they're descending into this dream consciousness and walking down these numbered stairs and the style of the architecture around them changes and they're sort of half aware of these characters that, that they've encountered previously in the narrative. That one's great. Uh, but I would probably take, there's a, a picture of all of the characters sitting in a train car in issue 11 and some looking away, some looking at the uh, the camera, I guess the viewer, which is Robert Black. And I love that one, both because, as you said, the character designs are a lot of fun and they're all in that one panel right there. Uh, and also it's just this reminder of that that Lovecraftian thing, that root thing about uh, what works about that horror for me, which is that uh, it's unfathomable. You're a pawn in something bigger. You really can't understand and you can't do anything about um it's that existential dread so i would i would love to have that one i'd absolutely put it up on the wall i don't think it's uh i don't think it's too risque okay excellent well we should grant you those and i shall post images when this episode <laughs> comes out um in november max if people want to read Providence, I got the I bought the issues digitally on Comixology for all twelve. I got all twelve issues that way. Collected editions were slight, getting slightly hard to to find. They seem to be out of print in English language versions. Although I keep, Amazon kept recommending me um, versions in French or German, it seemed. But 
you emailed me last week because there seems to be a new a new edition coming out. Is that right? Yeah, it looks like Avatar is issuing a all-in-one, all twelve issues collected hardcover, uh, and there are. Avatar Press, I guess, loves these collector's editions, which are exorbitantly expensive. Uh, but one of those collector's editions also includes a soft cover, all 12 issues together that isn't isn't for sale separately yet. But one imagines they're not printing it just for the $600 set. So uh, <laughs> keep an eye out for those two. Yeah. And the hard the hard cover version, I think, was going to be about $60, I think. Yeah, 60 bucks US, which uh, yeah. seems... Seems worth it to me, although I'm sure you can read it on Comixology if you can deal with that. I like I like the pages myself. Yeah, well, I would prefer to have had the book myself, but uh, as I say, I found it difficult to get hold of any other way. But yeah, hopefully there's a new edition going to be with us shortly, so people, if they are interested, can check it out. Great stuff, Max. Anything else from your notes you wanted to mention about this really somewhat challenging but um, intriguing book? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> I think... Uh... You know, there's a lot here to mine, obviously. I think we touched on a lot of stuff. Uh, and I encourage everyone to read it for themselves and have, have those conversations yourselves. Thank you. That's excellent stuff. Uh, as I say, intriguing and one of the more challenging reads I've had for this podcast. Not one that I'd thought about reading before, actually. But uh, yeah, I think I'm glad I have read it. As you say, there's an awful lot of stuff in there. Well, thank you for going out on a limb with me. I appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure to talk about. Thank you, Max. And thank you for giving up your time on this Sunday morning. And uh, I hope that 2020 gets a bit easier for um, North America, if not for the rest of the world, very soon. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, in fact. Knock on wood. Yes. And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. Uh, as ever, find out all the details at megacitybookclub.com, where you'll also find a link to the facts about Alan Moore's Providence uh, blog. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the 2080 forums, and on Spotify, and email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time on Megacity Book Club, when we're passing judgment on another great book, uh, it's goodbye from me and from Portland, Oregon. Stay sane out there. Wow. <laughs>